Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Imagine this. You're stranded on an island forever. But don't freak out because you get to bring one dish with you. Your desert island dish. What is it? Every week, your hosts, Paul and Tegan, that's us. Hello. Hello. We'll ask this question. They'll chat with and torment a literal raft of guests on the island who'll dish up stories, gossip, and culinary secrets. But they all have one big thing in common. They bloody love food. Welcome to Dish Island. Hello and welcome to Dish Island. I'm Paul Behoven. And I'm Tegan Higginbotham. Tegan, how's your week been? It's been lovely. It's been really nice, actually. Super busy. And on that, I do need to apologise to everybody. Not only is this week's episode of Dish going out a day late, <gasps> <Quelle horaire. gasps> but <laughs> I'm also not available for the interview. I'm so sorry. I'm almost glad because, Paul, you had an incredible connection with our guest and I think me jogging on and not being in there was probably a great thing. But I couldn't get out of work, so I'm really sorry, everybody. That said, I did find time to sneak in a cheeky movie this week in the evening. Yeah. And I have a whole new appreciation of the term popcorn horror. I understand that I might be opening a can of worms, Paul, by talking to you about food in cinemas, because I know you have very strong opinions on this. Specificity is my thing. Yep. Okay, go on. My friend and I were invited to see uh, the new horror film with Ethan Hawke, The Black Phone. Now, just as a little thing, it's a great film, everybody. And if you do like wonderfully written, brilliantly performed horrors, this is one to go and see at the cinema. It's excellent. What if I'm a very big fan of phones? <laughs> then you're going to love it. Yes! But walking into the cinema, this lovely woman uh, said, hey, it's it's a popcorn it's a popcorn horror taking some popcorn. And I was like, what do you mean popcorn horror? And she's like, you know, when you when you go, ah, all the popcorn flies everywhere. And I was like, oh, like it does in the movies. And she's like, yeah, so take some popcorn. I thought, okay, cool. Little did I know that my mate, who I was going to see the film with, is a screamer. Oh, I heard about this. As in when, you know, there are a couple of really good jump scares in this film, one of which I even went, <gasps> you know, I gasped, but she doesn't gasp, and I'm going to turn away from the mic for this. She's a really big, <laughs> like, and at the smallest scares as well, sometimes you just have somebody appear on camera, not even a jump scare, and she'd be like, oh, my God. Yeah, you know, a sans serif font is used in the title, is that... <laughs> As a type font fan, that scares the shit out of her. Okay, so- But in the end, yep. she was using the popcorn not as a, you know, fun prop for when she was scared, yeah. but to try and stifle her audible reaction. Oh, so God. she was just mainlining this popcorn. And I was like, thank God we brought this in. I mean, not only had we both not eaten dinner, so we needed all the popcorn we could get. Yeah, yeah. But this was her means of coping with the film. And I just wonder if maybe I've been thinking of movie snacks entirely wrong. Maybe this is why people are eating. Maybe they're stressed. Maybe they're emotional. Maybe they need a little bit of chocolate because they've just seen a shitty Star Wars and it's the only thing that's going to pick them up. Well, speaking of audible reactions, Tegan, when I found out that we were getting today's guest on the show, I freaked out. I'm such a big fan of his. I've been a big fan of his for a long, long time. Many of us have. He is one of Australia's most esteemed, respected musicians. There's really no good way to set him up in that I tried kind of 
piecing together his CV outside mm. of music, and it is just so intimidating. But he is going to be joining his wife, who was on the show last week. That's right. It's the husband of Ioni Sky, amongst other incredible accomplishments. Please welcome to Dish Island, Ben Lee. Welcome to the island. Thank you so much for joining us on Dish Island today. I have a bit of an odd confession to make to start off, and I'm not sure what the statute of limitations is, but back in, I think, about 1999, I was down at Manly Library on the Northern Beaches, where I used to live, and uh, you know when you're at your local library in the 90s, and they get a copy of an album that everyone was really keen for, and you could never get the copy because it was always out. Oh, yeah. Was it CD or cassette? CD. It was a CD of Breathing yeah, yeah, Tornadoes yeah. that came in. I stole it. I just took it. I never never took it back. Maybe, you know, the problem the, the problem is not between you and I. It's between you and the Manly Library. I really think you're <laughs> apologizing to the wrong person here. Oh, yeah. I, look, I think I did deprive an entire generation of people. No, of you actually probably people. helped me because they had to buy another copy. Oh, so right, so right, I, right. I sold two copies, but wouldn't it be funny if that one copy was what tipped it over to like double platinum or something? So perhaps had you not stolen it, <laughs> the history of that album would not be as iconic as it was. Uh, well, I guess I guess um, you're welcome is what I should be saying. <laughs> exactly. Um, well, okay, because I mean, it's, it's very, very trippy to be uh, talking to you today. We've talked to a lot of really wonderful recording artists. This is ostensibly a food podcast, Ben, and whenever we talk to recording artists, we kind of try and get them to admit what kind of food habits they have on the ro- when they're on the road, when they're touring, because do you turn into an absolute pig with no self-restraint? Are you a... You know when people get into hotel rooms and there's no one around to supervise them and they kind of turn into animals? Or do you have discipline when you're on the road with your eating? I, I swing wildly between extremes. I think I, I've come recently to realize that is like to some sense like um, can be classified as like an eating disorder. I don't think I have like an eating disorder, but I have disordered eating, you know, in the right. sense that like when I'm working, I'll forget to eat sometimes and yeah. I'll just be and then but I'm a madly passionate food person on the other hand and I'll become and I'll hugely indulge and be like hedonistic and I think I just my my relationship to food is not it's non-linear and it's non it's not particularly stable I mean actually that was more when I was younger since basically once I got into my 40s I just became someone trying not to be fat which is sort of I think what happens to men like when you get into your 40s because I used to be like just really too skinny like I couldn't eat enough to keep any weight on my bones and then once you get married and have a baby it's just like your body just goes all right you did it let's uh let's expand the uh, the borders here you know <laughs> do you think that do you think that changed you? and this is a very forgive me if this is a naive question but as a performer as a singer does a changing body change the way you perform move around a stage and more importantly does it change the way you sound how different are you now musically to the way you were then well i think it is sort of like um probably like a heavyweight or a lightweight fighter in that there's benefits (laughs) to both you know like to be a like to be a lightweight fighter is to be agile and you're working with the ability to pivot and dexterity and being elusive in a sense. But to be a heavyweight is to be able to stand your ground no matter what comes at you. So I do think there is a sort of emotional truth 
to the gaining of weight as your life goes on. Or at least that's what I tell myself. A, a part of my emotional character and physical character mm. was kind of defined by, you know, it's, it's like a young rock star thing. You know what I mean? That you are mm. sinewy and more like a cat, you know? And then as you get older, you become more like a bull. And I do, it doesn't mean it's, it's about being fat. It's about, but it's about earthiness, groundedness, strength, um, unmovability, yeah. unshakability. All of that comes with physical form becoming solidified in a sense, you know? Do you think that you now, uh, the Ben Lee of 2022, is better equipped to deal with 2022? Because let's be honest, it's not... As, as an artist, you, you talk about, sing about, write about create things that are, you know, feeding off the world around you. And the world right now is pretty stressful. So do you think that you now is better equipped to deal with 2022 than you would have been back then? Yeah, I mean, I suppose I'm better equipped to deal with it in that I don't see it exclusively through the lens of my own suffering or my own aspirations. Whereas I think when you're really young... That's how you see everything. It's just a naturally more kind of self-involved or narcissistic experience. And the ability as you get older to realize that not only are you not the only person that matters or the only person in the world, <laughs> but you develop a real compassion and empathy for people that have things harder than you do too. So as hard as it's been uh, the last few years have been for me, there's so, so many people that I know and love that are in my life that it's been harder for. And that ultimately becomes, you know, like for instance, you know, we're in America now and we, we sort of go back and forth and being in America at the moment in our particular circumstance, we feel physically safe reasonably. Right. Yeah. Whereas, um, for a, there's a lot of people, people, kids who are in big public schools in the South or in the Midwest where they send parents and their kids to school and they don't necessarily trust the space being secure in the, the where they're sending their children into. Um, but in a sense, the type of struggle you experience as you get older has to do a lot with also what other people are experiencing and realizing just empathetically how sad that is or how painful that is that people are suffering even if you're not suffering in the exact same way sorry i mean i know it's a real downer to bring up school no, shootings that's not no, exactly no because no no because no, we avoid it we avoid it on our podcast too because it's like we just like anytime we've tried to talk about it it's just been like it sucks the air out of the entire room <laughs> so I mean, no, it's <laughs> I, yeah, I was on Twitter literally scrolling through and they're doing, I mean, there's videos from the school that are coming out that are revealing more stuff and the January yeah. 6th hearings are happening and sometimes you just want a song about parents getting high in a living room, right? Sometimes you just want something frothy and you want the stakes to be smaller so that the world that you can relate to and interface with is a little more copable. I mean, is that one of your coping mechanisms, telling smaller stories that are more relatable? Well, I think I philosophically disagree with the fundamentals of the question where because I don't see levity or smallness or intimacy as inherently being less valuable or less profound oh, I course, think it's yeah. it's it's unfortunate that 
our world is so marred by tragedy that we often don't have time to appreciate the subtleties of like human connection or things that are light and things that have like a a spring in their step like not everything it, 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 we can't we can't even appreciate the heaviness of like we can't appreciate the immensity of certain problems that we're going through because we're being punched in the face every day in such an intense manner so so i i don't see it as a coping mechanism i see it as um it's sort of equally the truth you know what i mean like the the yeah. truth of the world is that it isn't all tragedy it isn't all suffering, but we start feeling like it is. And I yeah. think smokusing, uh, focusing on small moments, um, tender moments, moments of connection, moments of um, little questions, they're, they're, they're equally important. It's just we, the world, it's sort of being sucked out of, our ability to appreciate them is being sucked out of our bandwidth or something. Yeah, maybe what I've done is I've, I've conflated grittiness with realism, which is a really, I think, common and stupid mistake in that when I was younger, it was really important to me that music was angry because anger is true and because raw teenage emotions are all really pissed off. And I would balk at the idea of pop music as a thing that had value because it was just so goddamn frothy, right? But I remember Richard Curtis, who is the guy who did Notting Hill and Love Actually, and he was getting really mad about the idea that realism was gritty and intense and he said what's equally realistic and equally frequent is if you go to an airport and watch people getting off planes and seeing their loved ones they're all just so deeply happy to see each other and that that's just as realistic it's just a different side of the coin right absolutely and even you know i'm such a big comedy person like i think of steve martin the jerk or the lonely guy as being they contain truths about human nature that are not possible for the heaviest of philosophical content to tackle there's yeah. something in the what we laugh at our ability to laugh at ourselves also equally something like the pet shop boys which to me are one of my favorite musical acts who are deliberately dealing with artifice and levity and pop culture to me have written some of the saddest songs in the canon of popular music. And there's something in the tension between those dance songs and the minor chords and the way it all comes together. And I just don't think it's like, I think it's sort of, I, I've been in the same place that you talk about where it's like, yes, unless it's like, Yugoslavian and you know like just like <laughs> ramming you with just like existential angst it can't possibly be real and I, I came to believe more what Oscar Wilde said give a man a mask and he'll show you the truth that it's actually in the points where we separate from greediness and from reality and go into representation of things and symbolism and abstractness and silliness is where, for me, where a lot of the truth really lies. Well, it's a bit of a Trojan horse, right? I mean, you can sneak in, not even sneak, but you, people find it very digestible, pop music. And if something happens during a pop song they weren't expecting, I think maybe it hits harder or something. Whereas if, if you're stressed from the entry point, then your heart's probably less open, right? Yeah, I think there's something to that for sure. And I think laughter is the same. I think I think that a moral in a movie that you get to 
what that you laugh your way towards is mm. digested in a way that's incredibly profound. Uh, and, you know, I love a good heavy, you know, when I was growing up, I would have said like an SBS film or something is different <laughs> now. My in-laws are watching SBS, so they were, it's become a different beast. I was describing how it was the place to see like really moody movies with boobs um, oh, when yeah. I was growing up, you know. Yeah, which I there, think there's yeah, Mangan yeah. doing the kind of weird art house <laughs> stuff and you knew you were going to see boobs. Like, yeah, it was just... awesome, awesome. <laughs> yeah. Um, but so, you know, I've got all that in me too. Okay. I just watched this movie on the plane, The, um, the Worst Person in the World. Did you see that? Um, I've heard a, of it. I've, great yeah. movie, uh, great movie, like full of existential longing and sexual angst and uh, repressed female desire being dealt with. You know, it's all it's all brilliant. I love all of it. But just personally, I'm interested in, and part of my the lessons I've had to digest about making art have to do with how you walk the line between entertaining people and making something that's joyous and fun and that people can hum along to without resenting them for it. Because I think a lot of pop music, sometimes I feel like the people making it hate the audience. (laughs) Like it sounds cynical to me. It sounds like it's made with resentment for idiots you know that's that's the, the feeling i get um whereas pop music to me when it's pure should be made generously almost like a kindergarten teacher leading their kindergarten class through a song in the most you know the most innocent fun playful way that it's really touching like the child in us yeah. um it's just unfortunately it's it's become such a machine and so industrialized that I think it's like often made more like an advertising campaign for something. Yeah, yeah, I agree. I mean, and I don't even know what they're trying to sell me. They just want my money. Oh, it definitely has that feeling. And I mean, for me, as a cynical young Godspeed you Black Emperor listener, there's nothing wrong with Godspeed. It's pretty stressful. But (laughs) I remember when I got into pop properly, it was like in you know regarding Henry that Harrison Ford film where he gets shot in the head because he's he's this ruthless Wall Street executive gets shot in the head during a robbery, and it basically. Uh, resets his brain so he has to learn to walk again and talk and he's with Annette Benning, which would obviously help um, but <laughs> he becomes a much nicer person because the people around him are just sort of walking him through the basics of how to be a decent human being and by the end of the film everyone adores the guy because he's he's just had the guck wiped off for me it felt like, sorry god that's a tortured metaphor but it felt <laughs> like it felt like this music was like you said holding my hand and walking me through just some fundamentals on how to be happier. Does that make and sense? I think I think all art should do that. Like I think art to me, when I think of the best teachers that I've ever had, they mm. were all musicians and directors and artists. And they weren't people I knew personally. They were I learned about life through art. And I still believe that that's sort of the purpose of art. Like it should sort of teach us about, and and I don't mean that in a condescending way as if the artist is more perfect or more realized than we are, because often artists actually can't live up to the values of their own work. Mm. In fact, I think if you're any good, you're not as good as your work. Uh, There is something coming through you that's better than you are, because otherwise, you know, Jimi Hendrix or miles or you know dylan they'd be like enlightened beings and they clearly were not uh they were 
sort of, or, you know, the, I don't know if you watch any of Get Back, the Beatles doco, but they were clearly oh, yeah. like sort of four regular guys just figuring it out that something magical was happening between them. And I think, yeah, I just sort of think that like, I look to music to guide me in a way. And it's guided me through some very strange places, some very beautiful places, some very morally complex places. But it always, when it's really worked, it's always been like, oh, I'm going into a new territory with this music guiding me. It's taking me somewhere. Are there any parallels for you between, say, creating works of art and putting these things out into the world that have lives of their own and parenting? Because Tegan and I aren't going to have kids, but we are creating a lot of things that will hopefully outlive us. And maybe part of what we're trying to do is create something that is better than us, like you said. I mean, are there any parallels to be drawn? Are there any similarities between creating a work of art and creating a person? Well, I think how little control you ultimately have yet how much responsibility is like it's really hard to rationalize both of those things it's very paradoxical because it is on you if you mess it up it's on you it really is uh, with both but if it works you really can't take credit for it (laughs) (laughs) and you don't get royalties Um. (laughs) exactly yeah, I mean, because you are on to, what, 17 albums? That is a... 17? Is it 17? Uh, I, I don't really count, because there's, there's a lot of side projects and things that everyone who talks about that, they have different mm. definitions of what count as albums, or okay. are they? does it count soundtracks or this? Or, I've heard people say 20 on the new one. Um, I like that. It's a round number. It's fun to talk about. With kids, you know, you can ideally only have a few because it's just it's a, obviously they're not exactly the same with creative projects you can just keep rolling them out i mean how do you feel listening back to early ben lee do you recognize that person do you listen to yourself with kindness in your ears or are you harsh and judgmental like i am of my work well i don't like listen to it um so my you know what i mean like my my yeah. my my attitude or my making peace with myself as a young artist is not manifest in the feelings that come up when I listen to the work because it's not that important. I'll never be able to hear my work accurately, quote unquote. I'll never be able to hear it the way the audience hears it. I'll only ever hear it as a collection of my own memories and fears from the time and hopes for the time and what I wanted something to be and what it ended up like and all these, you know, disappointments and victories. And for me, it's more about how do I feel about the person I was sure. at that time? And I think that's very common, whether you're an artist or not. We all, it's just for me as an artist, I can't run from that as easily as someone could, you know, theoretically you can start a new life or turn over a new leaf as an anonymous civilian whereas as someone with a bit of a degree of notoriety or something you travel with that behind you and it's with you when you walk into a room and whether people everyone knows you some people know you when you have to explain yourself it it you you carry your history with you and i suppose that's what i mean by the heavyweight thing it's like you do have an option of do you perceive yourself as weighed down 
by your past or do you perceive yourself as a heavyweight? You know what I mean? They're, they're, they're yeah, different. Yeah. They're different in terms of the energy that you carry your past with you. Yeah. With. So you're saying that once you've been perceived beyond a certain um, like level publicly, there's a version of you out there whether you like it or not. Is that- yeah, we'll take it on the, on the most, like pick a very you know, crass example in a sense. It's not crass, but like Monica Lewinsky, mm. like she played a role in the unfolding of history and culture yeah. that was a moment in her life as a young girl, but she will never not be that in people's minds. That will mm-hmm. always be part of... Now, what's been interesting with her is watching her acquire the dignity, yeah, the elegance mm. of someone who, you know, nobody wants to live their adult life with people thinking about them giving a blowjob. It's just like not... You know what I mean? It's not yeah. It's not something anyone wants, yet she's somehow... She's done some alchemy and enough work on not running from herself that she's kind of been like, this is my lot. It reminds me of Johnny Cash in the Hurt video, pouring the wine out on the table and saying, you can have it all, This my empire of dirt. Uh, there's a acceptance of who he is, what he's achieved, what he hasn't. Uh, I just think that wrestling with that, as people get older you really can see people who have sort of made peace with the limitations of being stuck in one body, one personality, one story. Because when you're young, it feels like you could be anything. It's like when you're a kid and they're sort of like, do you want to be a train driver or an astronaut or, you know, a ballerina or anything? And it's pretty crazy, you know, when you get to middle age, say, and you realize that you're now in you're well into the second act of a story. And as we know, with all good storytelling, there can be twists and turns, but the story is established. The themes are established. Uh, when we're, With good storytelling, it would be actually disappointing if the story changed too radically because then we wouldn't get to understand the arc of the character, right? It becomes more about refinement of the personal narrative at a certain point. And I think that does take a kind of acceptance of your lot. It's like, I think they called it in Christianity, bearing your cross. Mm. You know, whatever whatever it is you have to carry, that's yours. You've got to carry that. But how you walk through life is, uh, you know, that's in your attitude. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is plush care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Yeah, I was always told that you are going to die. It's going to happen. It's your choice how you choose to meet that kind of that inevitability i mean do you think relinquishing control is god again these are just like godspeed lyrics but but it's all true right like it's all completely true stuff i'm just very curious as to how you marry those two things together um because a an artist is trying to not not defy fate but to try and make sense of things are you are you finding that your worldview is 
changing over time and that it's changing your approach to music as well? Yeah, and it's also not about what was the word you used? How you not marry ideas, balance? What was used the term? I think it was marry, maybe. I'm not okay, sure. but but yeah. but I think the idea that there's a peaceful state to reach without tension or without struggle mm. is sort of a fantasy. Uh, I'm not sure that there is a final like place you get to where you're totally satisfied in the balance between control that's relinquished, like what you can control and what you can't, and you understand that perfectly. It's it's more like a dance. I always think of it like juggling. Life and careers and everything, they, they seem to resemble juggling a lot to me where you can actually have quite a few balls in the air, but as soon as you focus on any one of them, you could drop all of them. So it's all about looking straight ahead and just keeping your hands moving. Is one solution to put as many of the same thing in the same ball as possible? Like, for example, we both work with our wives to a degree, and yeah. it's been really fulfilling, and it means that when you are focusing on the one thing means you're focusing on, like, three th- things at once. It's it's a It felt inherently risky to me at the start going in, and now I've found that actually I couldn't live without it. I found it really fulfilling. But Did I you mean, start working... How far into your relationship did you start working together? Oh, it's super unprofessional, Ben. We met on the set of a short film and yeah. we had a scene together and we flirted heaps and then um, I, we both left our partners and got together and we've been kind of collaborating ever since. It's been a pretty constant thing. But God, there's so many lessons. There's so many things like this just weird, like ego becomes a thing and money becomes a thing and then just it, it, it tangles up. But the payoff, I think, is worth it. I mean, what 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 do you think some of the perks and, you know, challenges of working with Ioni have been for you? Well, you know, we we always did things together, but yeah. not on a consistent level. So we make music videos or short films or album covers. There was always a lot of collaboration, but we didn't really formalize that until we started doing our live shows and then the podcast and, you know, everything we, we are doing now. Um that sort of came later and we've now been together for about 15 years. Wow. So, okay. so in some ways, but it's quite funny because in some ways I think we had an experience of like, we almost had to build trust for 15 years before we would formalize <laughs> that collaboration because like, <laughs> I don't know, like it just things like learning how to talk to each other in the vulnerability of having made something. Like I remember just, you know, you, it's like being in an art class together. You have to learn how to appraise each other's work and what the other person's actually asking. Because yeah. sometimes the other person is not actually asking for your opinion. And sometimes they are. And to be able to listen really well and to not try and just serve your own ego that wants to give its two cents but is sort of saying, okay, what's my partner actually asking of me here? I mean, that's all something that we really had to learn because we've been sort of very just artists on our own path until yeah. we got together. Um, so, yeah, in terms of, but now it's really, we do under, we really do respect each other's creativity. And I think that proving that over years and years has been really a beautiful thing that's useful now when we're in the spot that we are where we just know there's we see real value in each other and i think that is quite reassuring 
Uh, we haven't really hit too many things I would call downsides of it at the at the moment. I think we hit them. We used to hit them more. Uh, feelings of you know abandonment and I don't know whatever feeling like boundaries being crossed or disrespected or yeah. or, or or unsolicited advice <laughs> that was a big one for both of us I think and we yeah. both used to give unsolicited advice and you kind of realize that like creatively each person is listening to their intuition and the best thing you can do to support someone else is help them listen to their intuition not listen to you you know and I think that's in general with production and development stuff that Anytime I offer an opinion, I go, this is just my opinion. Because I don't know, especially with someone else's work, if they're asking me, even if they're asking me, I'll say, look, this is just one idea of how you could do it. Yeah. And you may well end up thinking that's a very good idea and want to use it. But I wouldn't want to put, like, I know how confusing it is, as a, especially when you're younger, as an artist, the battle between listening to your own inner voice and listening to other people's advice it's like super confusing. And I oftentimes listen to other people's advice because it was presented in a way that as if it was coming from my own, well, you know what you really need to do. You know, anyone who says that, it's like, I hate that. Yeah. Like, you can't yeah. tell me what I really need to do. You can tell me what you think maybe I should do, but you can't re you cannot know what I need to do. You know? And so I think all yeah. of that stuff, like how you talk to each other as creative people is like, a massive part of what determines not even the success of the project, just the good vibe. Like, are you going to keep it a good vibe or not? hundred percent. I mean, who's the blunt one? Who's the direct one in this partnership? I think we each can take turns with that. Like, interesting. Yeah. I don't think there's one or the other. Um, I, I'm a little more probably like domineering innately, just maybe just like being a guy and being, you know, having that macho, that need to assert myself is probably, you know, but then I only can be like pretty cold, like with something she says too. <laughs> so it's not like dominating, but it can be like one sentence that's like, woo, okay. <laughs> Won't be forgetting that one in a hurry. <laughs> like a red dot appears in your forehead. Yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah. I, I see. Uh, it's so interesting, the idea of giving... Because the stakes are a lot higher, but the payoff seems a lot higher, right? Because when... Tegan says, what did you think of this bit? I am, I'm compelled to be honest because it only benefits in the long run to be honest, but I've spent years learning the language of how to be honest in a way that won't damage anything. Well, and but inherently, it started with her asking. So yeah. that's, that's, that's already, you, you've got, there's an invitation for your thoughts. But it's funny how often we think there's an invitation and there isn't. You know, like someone just going like, hey, let me show you this new bit is yeah. not an invitation for your criticism. That's a good point. That's a very, <laughs> shit. I'm actually remembering um, a thing I said about four days ago, Ben, that was unsolicited, unsolicited. feedback. And things got a bit frosty. And I <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's not good, man. It's, it's, so, it's so funny. And, but it is funny how, like, if you wait for the invitation and mm. you give advice when it's asked for, it's amazing how much more trusted you are and then how much more often you're asked because it's like, you're, you're, it's like, that's what I think makes a good producer, essentially. Someone that doesn't chime in their two cents on every decision. They wait for when they feel really, they've really got a strong feeling about something. And even then they're very respectful of the creative process of 
anyone else who's involved. It's a it's a skill, that kind of thing. Oh man. Look, we've strayed so haven't deep even into talked the- about food. <laughs> The, food, the, the waters of profundity are lapping at our knees and we've not touched food. And there's literally this one, there's only really one mandatory food question and it's kind of the the premise around which the entire show revolves. Yeah, yeah. So I'm going to ask you this question, Ben, and you can answer in whichever absurd means you deem fit. But basically this show takes place on an island where you are forced to bring one dish with you and it's referred to as your desert island dish. Now, some people... They're very practical. You know, they, they bring raw ingredients so that they can make whatever they want. Some people want a magical restaurant where they get the same dish served to them every day. Some people have tried to cheat. One, oh God, somebody had their mum bring them their favorite dish every day. And they thought that if they grabbed their mum's leg, when the mum disappeared, they'd get yanked back through time and space across to the home. That, that doesn't work. Um, <laughs> but basically, yeah. What is your desert island dish? Ben, what's the okay. one dish you brought with you? So this dish I, I fell in love with when it was much less widely available than it is now. But mm-hmm. you know when you have something that you discover at a certain time that you can't get anywhere else? Oh, it yeah. holds, yeah. it elevates it in importance. So there's a place in New York. It was on, uh, I think, Mercer and Prince when I lived in New York at like late 90s, early 2000s. Um, called Cafe Habana. And they were the first place that did corn, grilled corn with chili, cheese, and lime on it, yes. on a stick, you know? like, um, And uh, it was the first place I'd ever had it. And it used that, you know, that cream that's in Mexican food? That's like, it's not a cheese. It's like... Um, yeah, what is this? I forget what you call it. It's that really yummy... It's like their version of sour cream. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. So that on it. And I actually... That was the place when I worked with Kylie Minogue in New York. I took her there, and I was like, "You've got to eat this." Like, <laughs> and um, but this that now you get it. Like I, we actually got it on Uber Eats in Sydney recently. From now, there's like good Mexican food in Sydney. There yeah. used to be, if you weren't in LA, you just couldn't find good Mexican anywhere. But now, so now this type of grilled street corn, you can get it all around. But to me, it it holds a place of um, it's like. It's look, food is incredibly sensual. I think of it as a lot like music in a sense that it's it works best. It's like music on its first listen is the same as like a bite on a hungry stomach. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like when you haven't when you're not overdone with that, like you can do it. You can repeat it a hundred times, but it's never like that first time. And I just feel like this food, it represents to me something. It represents a time in my life. It was like one of the first times I like fell in love with a piece of food and just wanted it all the time. And it's a mixture of like sweet and chili and creamy and kind of grilled. And I just, I don't know. It means a lot to me. And I just, I still, it holds a real place in my heart. So that would be my food. Are you chasing that dragon still? Have you ever had one that was as good? As the first time. That's the thing. It's like, it probably is, but emotionally, it's like, it'll never be what it was. Right. But I can honor that. I can honor that. It's like, you can't expect, you can't expect all music to be hearing Nirvana at 13 years old. 
It's just not, it, there's a time and a place where your own development goes hand in hand with what you consume artistically, yeah. musically, uh, what's the equivalent of culinarily. Uh, it's all, you know, it, it's like you, it hits you at the right time and it's almost uh, presumptuous to think that that is an eternal experience, but it lives on in your memory and your imagination and you can have other experiences like that that will, you know, be with, with different types of food or music. Yeah, I'm glad to have deprived an entire generation of people a similar experience with your album. Down- <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Who didn't have it at the library. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, but Ben, thank you so much for joining uh, us today on Dish Island. I'm sorry Tegan couldn't be here. I'll say hi for me. I will, I will. And I really, I really had a great time. Thank you so much for talking and hanging out. I'm sorry, I know we went into the weeds, but God, it was fun. Easy, mate. Thank you so much. It was fun. Paul, are you going to leave me for Ben Lee because you guys clearly love each other? No, I really enjoyed that talk. And now Ben's got me freaked out about this library thing because <laughs> my mum was actually a serving member. It's not the military, Paul, calm down. She she worked at Manly Library for a while. <gasps> and I think I may recall that I, I think I may have used... Oh, no. I may have used my connections. <laughs> Your sweet, sweet library connections. What's the, hey, check it. I've got a card. It's but no, The problem is... What you do is you make small talk because you know the people there because your mum works there. And yeah. so while you're making small talk, you're just carrying a bag of stuff out. I shouldn't be admitting to this. No, you really shouldn't. Although, you know what's funny? <laughs> yeah. I have a mum slash library story as well. Less interesting. Uh, my mum misspelt the word library on my library bag for school. Oh, God. Yeah. Oh, no. We're going to leave you with that one, folks. The irony of misspelling the word library on a bag, which brings education into your life every week. Anyway, speaking of bringing education into your lives every week, if you can call it education, we will be back next week with another episode of Dish Island. Don't forget to head across to iTunes and leave us a rating and a review. We miss you all terribly. We're really sorry about the late podcast. And And the oven's fixed. I know that we're just going to fill you in. The oven's fixed, guys. I've had a few people message me. Thanks so much for your concern. It was our fault. <laughs> the oven's fixed. Problem is we left the food in there for, what, two weeks? And uh, we assume that when you start it back up, you can continue from where you left off. Still going to eat it. So that's what we're going to go do, <laughs> folks. <laughs> but remember, eat, eat your, your veggies. veggies. Provided you uh, didn't leave them in the oven for two weeks. Don't forget to follow us on Instagram at Dish Island. Dish Island is a proud member of the ACAST Creator Network. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.